Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon. Today we're talking about all things tax and all that interesting stuff. What can we claim, not claim, capital gains tax, purchasing property and trust. So we've got Michael Jones from Altus Financial here with us today. So I'm going to ask him all these hard-hitting questions. Let's get into it. Michael, welcome. Thanks, John. How are you going? I am awesome, thank you. So you're a senior client advisor with Altus Financial, who we've had Scotty Young on the show before, I believe. So the uh, your details will be in the show notes. Tell us, how's life as an accountant? Uh, at the moment, it's very busy. So obviously, the last few years have been challenging for a lot of our business clients. So increased workload's been great, but more interesting work allows us to help our clients better. And obviously, as uh, time's tightened over the next 12 months, I'm sure we'll be more useful and more required from our clients. But Yeah, I always used to think, well, I used to talk to accounts and, and think that, okay, June 30 is a deadline, It's uh, everything's busy, don't talk to an accountant, you won't get an appointment around then. But it seems as though now it's spread across the whole 12 months. Yeah, so it's funny, actually, the quietest month of the year for us is July. Well, wow. July and January is when everyone takes holidays. Yeah. Because most of your business clients aren't really ready to do their tax or anything yeah. like that come July. It always takes a few months to get things ready. Mm. And it's really cash flow these days. It's all quarterly, it's a lot of quarterly board meetings and things like that. So obviously have project work as well that we do during the year and obviously helping clients in the second half of the year make sure they hit their targets and sure. make the tax strategies in place before 30 June. Awesome. Well, thankfully to our listener group, which has been awesome, by the way, uh, they've put a whole range of questions in the Facebook group. So I've given you a few to run your eyes over today. So the first one from Paul Spicer, how does CGT, capital gains tax, affect different scenarios when selling investment properties? Which tax margin will it be, personal name versus PTYLTD, which is basically a company? Great question there, Paul. Thanks for sending that one through. So CGT will affect different scenarios when selling investment properties, which tax margin will it be, personal name versus proprietary limited. So it really depends on what entity owns the property and who's going to pay the tax. So if the property is owned by a company, the company will pay the tax and its tax return. Or if I own a property in my own name and make a capital gain on that, I'll pay the tax in my personal name. Okay, so... Personal name, example, um, 32 cents, 37 or 45, are they the different tax brackets at the moment? Yeah, so in my personal name, it'll depend what other income I have. So if my salary is $120,000 and then I sell an investment property, obviously the investment property gain will go on top of that 120 already. Mm-hmm. If I'm at 180, then any capital gain I make over on top of that will then start paying the top marginal tax rate of 47 cents. Well, if I was lucky enough to retire next year and waited till next year and I had no salary income, I would actually be able to pay no tax for the first approximately 22000 pay a smaller rate up to a 45 and then smaller rate again to or a larger rate to 120 and it goes up and up on the scale of tax rates. 
So that's a consideration there. Obviously, if I own a property in my own name, I can also get a discount. So if I own a property for more than 12 months as an investment, I can get a discount on that gain. I actually only pay tax on half. So again, that's the tax rate I spoke about before, depending on where my income sits when I sell the property. Important note here from Paul's question is, if it's in a proprietary limited in a company, companies aren't eligible for 50% discount. So a company will pay a set tax rate. Also, companies don't have scaled income. Companies pay a set rate of tax. So whether a company has $300,000 of income before it sells a property or it has zero, it'll pay a straight 30% tax rate. Awesome. That's great. Um, so a quick example, I'm on 140000 and my capital gain has been 50000 So that tips me over the 45 bracket of 180k yeah. per year bracket. So I'm paying ten grand of tax at the 45 and the rest would be at 37. Is that right? Yeah. So if you make a 50000 gain and there's no discount available or it's 100,000, you've already applied the 50. Yep, I've already applied 50, it. 50%, so you've got 50,000. Yeah, so that last 10,000 will get taxed at 47%, while the 40,000 before that will be in the bracket beneath that okay. at 34.5. Awesome. And as uh, initiatives by the government to change those tax brackets, as, uh, was there a phase three or four or something of the, the whole uh, <laughs> promise by the Labor government? Yeah, so at the moment... Legislation states that 1st of July 24, that tax bracket will increase from 180 to 200. Right. They're also talking about abolishing the tax rate between 45 and 120. Right. So it'll just be 45 straight to 200. There you go. So that's the majority of us out there, isn't it? Um, I think uh, the listener group that we've got, the average income must be like 70 or 80, I think, in the last survey. Yeah. So anywhere from 45 through to... 100, uh, 200. 200K. Will be in the same tax bracket. Which will be? Ooh, I'm not sure off the top of my head. Yeah, it's in the 30s, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely it's, uh, those at the top end get a get a benefit. I know that. Yeah, so if between 180 and 200, you're going to kick down a bracket. Mm. And those that are between 120 and 180 will kick down a bracket, yeah. Yeah, nice. Good work. Okay. Michelle Williamson, a spicy one here. I'm an accountant. When I interview accountants, my technical question is explain depreciation to a non-finance person. You would not believe how many don't do it well on this question. So the pressure's on, Michael. Pressure on, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle, for the hard one. So depreciation. So I guess to explain the concept of what this is, is if you think about purchasing an air conditioner, now, if you want to say it was $10,000 and that air conditioner is going to last you 10 years, the idea as a business or I guess as an investor is it's not really a $10,000 expense incurred this year because you're going to get the benefit of that for 10 years. So depreciation is an accounting term. While you paid the $10,000 out this year, you haven't really made a $10,000 expense this year because you're going to get the benefit for 10 years. So in simple terms, you actually claim as a deduction or a depreciation expense of 1000 every year for 10 years. What that does is it spreads the cost of that asset out over the effective life of the asset. So you get that benefit for 10 years, so you recognise one-tenth of the expense. Now in practical terms in tax, what we're actually able to do is they call it the diminishing value. We're actually able to claim more up front. So rather than claim 1000 each year for 10 years, we can actually claim 2000 the first year and it reduces and reduces each year. So by the end of the last year, you're only claiming $60. You do claim 10000 all, but the idea is generally for tax, we like to claim as much up front as we can because we want to save you the money now rather than save you down the track. Okay, great. So expanding on from 
business to investment properties, for example, when we uh, let's go to the top end of depreciation or maximum depreciation is uh, is buying something or building something brand new, and uh, and the build cost is three hundred fifty thousand. We can't claim the whole three hundred fifty thousand over the next thirty years of existence, can we? So the build cost of three hundred fifty thousand would be considered like capital works. So usually it's two point five percent at a fixed rate over forty years. Okay. All right, Kylie Haynes says, can you please get Michael to explain that accountants can't actually get people a bigger refund? It is based on what your expenses are. Accountants can't make up deductions. Now, what's Kylie on about here, Mick? Yeah, so I can't see in Kylie's frustration here is whenever a client has a tax bill, it's usually my fault, not theirs. (laughs) So I can understand that. So I think it's important to note that if you give 100 accountants the same information, 99 will get you the same result. You know, assume that one makes a mistake, whether it's a good one or a bad one. What a good accountant can do though is ask you good questions and prompt you to make better deductions. So that can be one of two things. One, just asking good questions and getting answers, things like working from home or um, how much you use your telephone, they're kind of the easy ones, but also to prompt you to record expenses, things like motor vehicle. So motor vehicle is multiple ways you can claim. Usually the most tax effective, if it's correct and appropriate, is a tax, is the logbook method. The logbook method allows you to record for 12 weeks how you use your car for work and then claim a tax deduction for that. So if you use it 40% for work and 60% personal, you can claim 40% of your fuel, your insurance, if there's interest on a loan, uh, 40% of depreciation, as we spoke about before, as opposed to that if you don't keep records, that option's off the table and you can't backdate a logbook. So you can only claim things like an estimate of kilometres and that's capped at 5,000 kilometres. So if you drive 20,000 kilometres a year and 50% is for work, that's 10,000 kilometres of expenses you've incurred but if you don't have a logbook, you can only claim up to 5,000 as an estimate. So a good accountant can ask you questions and prompt you, in particular for investments, things like recommending quantity surveyor reports in terms of deductibility on interest. So that advice can be given before you purchase the property is usually more helpful as well. So a good accountant helps you by prompting you with good questions and good record keeping. And, and to finish off on that, uh, you as a client want to ask good questions of the accountant as well, don't you? And one of these is from Krithi saying, is the fee for a buyer's agent for an investment property tax deductible? So the fee for a buyer's agent, unfortunately, isn't tax deductible in the year you purchase a property. It gets added to the capital cost base. So what that means is you get a benefit of that when you dispose of the property, but you don't get the benefit up front. Okay, Krithi, sorry to hear that, um, but you can claim it. It's just a bit of uh, delayed gratification. Yeah, so it comes off, it's added to the cost base. So when you sell the property, and if you make a $100,000 gain on the property after the 50% discount, and then you paid 5000 for the buyer's agent, you only paid tax on ninety five. Perfect. Not sure we would find a 5K BA out there, but uh, it may happen, you know. (laughs) All right. One more before we hit a break. Uh, Sharon, and you've spoken about depreciation schedules before, but let's go a little bit deeper here. Um, Sharon Clement says, should I get a depreciation schedule done or can my accountant work out the depreciation cost at tax time? Yes, it's obviously a property by property basis. But I have yet to see an appreciation schedule cost more than the benefit it's provided. So usually you can ring up a quantity surveyor and get a quote and they'll give you an idea, maybe not on the spot, but over the next week or so, they'll contact you and if they don't think that it's going to be beneficial, they usually won't ask to do one. 
Yeah, and I've found that in my experience as well. And and most of them will say, look, if we can't get you more of a benefit, yeah, they, they, they yeah. obviously won't charge you or would, would tell you up front they'd look at the house online or whatever. Yeah, they look at it online. I look up its build year and things like that and they make an educated decision. Yeah. So in short, Sharon, no, the accountant won't be doing your depreciation schedule for you. They simply get the quantity surveyor's report and, and, and put that or include that into your total tax return. Yeah, and important note on that too is if you get a quantity surveyor's report this year, and then in two, three years, you spend more money on the property then, depending what it is, I wouldn't necessarily go get a new quantity surveyor's report. So if you installed a $10,000 air conditioner, you wouldn't engage a quantity surveyor to come out again. The accountant can then calculate the depreciation on that one asset. Okay. Yeah. And and generally, depreciation schedules were 30 years now. I think they're 40 years, aren't they? Yes. Which is, uh, which is a long time, probably longer than when you would actually own the property for. So uh, a quick bit of advice on that is when you buy the property, get the depreciation schedule done then. Don't hang off until June 24 and think, yeah, I'll get it done before tax time. When we purchase property, we're in the mode of admin and getting it turned in and, and doing all those back-end bookwork thingies. Let's just uh, order the depreciation schedule then at the same time and then you've got it, flick it through to your accountant and then it's in their hands. Yep. All right, let's take a break and we'll come back with more questions. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. All right, so we're back. Corinna Fullerton says, what records should I be keeping for an investment property to make claiming deductions easier? Great question there, Corinna. I would say for the start, just keep a record of everything you can. The reason is, as an accountant, I would prefer someone to send me 40 things with 10 being non-tax deductible and only 30 tax deductible than to send me 28 and miss two. So it's part of my job to make sure to take out those that can't be claimed and to educate my clients on what can and cannot be claimed. The more information I have from you, the better. So things that I would be keeping, council rates, obviously any interest on interest on loans, any improvements to the property, or might be not might not be a tax deduction in the year, can be an improvement and can claim depreciation in the future, repairs and maintenance, advertising for tenants. Obviously, if you have a property agent managing the property for you, they will keep 
this for you and can actually do a lot of disbursements and pay the council rates and things for you, often at a, at a charge, but can make life easier for you at tax time. But I would just always say everything you can keep, keep, and a good accountant will knock back what they can't, but educate you on what you should be keeping. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I think you're right in the sense that the property manager should give you a, a basically a financial statement at the end if um, – uh, if they're worth their weight in gold, which has a breakdown of everything for that year. So your total income, all your total expenses and a breakdown of what those expenses were. And you're almost simply just handing that to your accountant plus what you've paid for out of your own pocket. And and that's what I like the beauty of having a, a property manager is because if you get them to pay all the bills, they're also inadvertently doing all your accounting for you or your admin for you at the same time. The only thing they're probably not doing is... Um, well, they're not doing is getting your interest from your from your bank lines. Yeah, so the good property manager, we simply get the financial statement from them at the year end, and also it's a good way for you to check and you can see what the rent was each month going up. You'd hope, and you obviously can see the gaps in your income as well, which can you know, give you a bit of an idea of why cash flow might have been a bit harder in some months than others. But really, what happens after that usually, if we have a good financial statement from the property manager, is we simply make an adjustment for three things: interest land tax and depreciation. Yeah, awesome. And just uh, just rolling there, a bit of a side question, the whole land tax thing. Uh, people, a lot of new investors don't really understand what it is. It's, it's, it's a state-based tax where if you go over the certain land value of threshold, um, you'll start to pay land tax as a percentage on that land ownership each year. Now, excludes your principal place of residence. Um, but where do we get to in, in respect to land tax? Like as an accountant, do you have that conversation with them or should a good accountant be having that conversation about diversification within the portfolio? In terms of the portfolio is in for land tax considerations or? Yeah, just um, just seeing if, if you pick up a, a land tax amount applied to uh, for, for tax purposes, right, that you've, they've, they've had to pay land tax throughout the year. Because what we're seeing is land tax has actually become a really important part of someone's portfolio because the land value has gone up considerably in the last couple of years. So all of a sudden, new investors are getting these land tax bills uh, on their, in their mailbox, right? Yeah, so it's important to note that land tax isn't, isn't the value of the property, it's the value of the land underneath, decided by the New South Wales Inspector General. Or any other state. Yeah, you're correct, or any other state. So you don't get a lot of control in it. What has happened in the last two years, I've seen more of in the last two years and probably the last 15, is people actually pushing back and trying to get revaluations done or reassessments on their land tax values. Why has that happened? Because land values have skyrocketed, obviously, in the last few years, and state governments are obviously one of the bigger piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. In terms of taking land tax into consideration in buying investment properties, a big one is on structure. So individuals have a certain threshold that can change in different states where you don't have to pay land tax or you pay land tax at a reduced rate. So for instance, in New South Wales, trusts don't get that threshold, neither do companies, but individuals do. I'm not sure each state has its own rules, but that can be consideration on what entity you purchase a property in. And yes, as land tax values go up or land tax expense goes up on land values, it would be be an important factor to consider against your expected rental income. Mm, Awesome. Yeah. So, and again, extension from that question is when would a property investor start to have have a conversation with their accountant around 
buying entity because they might be either a first-time in, investor or they might just simply have their owner-occupier home and, uh, and, and want to grab some equity and go and buy something else for investment purposes. So how early on in that process would they, would they have that chat with someone like yourself? So probably depends how good the relationship is. I like to yep. think my clients would approach me pretty early rather yeah. than after the fact. It's always easier to provide advice and assistance before the purchase is made. Usually it's a strategy that's been in play for 12 to 18 months, I find, before someone actually makes a purchase. Um, those sh- timeframes shortened in recent years because I think there's a lot of panic in the market when prices were going up and up and up. People wanted to get in before it was too late. Now that attitude's kind of slowed a little bit. We're finding more and more people giving more advice or more notice on their strategies involving that. So typically I think most people kind of start to think once they've got equity in their house, that they know that they're not going to have to pay lenders mortgage insurance, they can afford to then go fund an investment property, they usually start talking about it about 12 months out. Okay. And would generally most people that you see buy property in their personal name as opposed to a a trust or a company or something? In terms of their first investment property, I'd say yeah, 9 out of 10 would buy in their own names or shared names of their spouses. Uh, In terms of trusts, once people start reaching a certain threshold or owning multiple, multiple properties, they tend or they start thinking about the next generation and how they pass it down. Trust become more and more popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, on the whole personal name ownership, you've got what's called joint tenants and tenants in common as options, haven't you? Yes. And so a lot of clients, when we're speaking to them about strategy and and whose name's going to be on the title and whose name's going to be in the loan, the loan is necessarily irrelevant for, for ownership purposes. Um, yep. It's just getting the money, right? But from an ownership point of view, um, most commonly it would be if there's two people, husband and wife or partners, they would be 50-50, um, either joint tenants and tenants in common. Can you just quickly explain the, the difference there? Yeah, so tenants in common becomes quite popular for two people who've come together. Typically when you see it is when they have kids from prior relationships and while they're together as a couple and they share that home and want to have mutual benefit of it, what they don't want is in the event one of them passes, therefore the survivor their estate has the entire property and their children. So if I, my wife and I had two kids each to prior relationships and if she passes away before me, why should my two kids get the benefit of that in the estate and not hers? Sure. Okay. So that way they would go down the path of uh, um, tenants in common, but traditionally it defaults to joint tenants, yeah? Yeah, typically it's joint tenants and in that case you both just own the property for mutual benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people don't understand this, but you can choose a percentage of ownership, can't you? So you could be joint tenants 99% to me and 1% to you, for example. Yeah, and why a lot of people did that, it was became very popular about 10 years ago, was the idea being that if, well, I'll use my wife for example again, if it's 99% me and 1% her, and we have a, say it's positively geared, this property, it's making money, it makes $10,000 a year. Well, $9,900 appears in my tax return and $100 appears in hers. Now, if I'm at a lower tax rate than her, then therefore I'm paying less tax. Now, the question would be, why not have all 10000 mm. in that in my name? Well, the reason would be if we have 1% in Rhiannon's name and 99% in my name, we can actually use Rhiannon's earning as well to help contribute to the loan. So in terms of financing, they can look at Rhiannon's salary and my salary in terms of meeting the debt requirements. Yeah. So generally speaking, you can be on the title but not be on the loan. But if you're on the loan, you need to be on the title. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. 
So Talia has a curly one. Would they recommend purchasing investment properties in trusts? And if not, how do you continue to get lending in personal names? Great question there, Talia. Thanks for sending that one in. So it's important to note that trusts are actually governed by state law. So trusts are different in every state, as is land tax. So when the idea of purchasing an investment property in a trust, it is a popular strategy. I've got many clients that have done that. It really comes down to your particular circumstances. So things to consider are one, the cost to set up a trust. So you have to set up a trust, can cost somewhere between 1500 and 2000 depending on the state you're in. And there's actually government charges on that. So for instance, in New South Wales, it's approximately $550 is a state stamp duty paid on establishing the trust. The second thing is you actually have ongoing compliance requirements. So a trust is its own entity and actually declare, actually has to lodge its own tax return every year. So if I have a trust or property in a trust, I have to do an extra tax return, which is an extra cost to an accountant to do a trust every year. So that has to be weighed up against any benefits. So you might be wondering why do some people own properties and trusts? The idea behind, usually they do it in a discretionary trust or commonly referred to as a family trust. The benefit of this can be is that income can be distributed out to different family members within the household in different years. So you can obviously try to pick tax beneficial beneficiaries every year and that can actually change from year to year. So if, for instance, you've got a, a couple and then one retires three years earlier than the other, for three years there, you'd expect the one that's not working to receive the taxable distribution from the trust for the rental property. Yeah, okay. So what what that really bleeds to is is understanding what the next five or 10 years look like, doesn't it? And, and before you buy that property, just really having an idea as to how long you're going to keep this property. Like we, we've done some developments in the past where we've had it in a unit trust, knowing full well that in two to three years' time, we're going to offload that and move that on. It has the ability to distribute the income various ways within the unit trust. Whereas if it was in our personal name, uh, it might be a different story if it was if it was going to be a long-term buy and hold. Yeah, correct. There's a good point there too. With being a trust, you are still eligible for the capital gains discount of 50%. So earlier, uh, Paul's question for enterprise limited at a company you don't get the CGT discount, while a trust still does allow you to get that CGT discount that mm. an individual would get, which is why property in trust is more popular than property in companies. Yeah, there you go. Interesting stuff. Hey, we don't want to get too deep on this um, and we were just starting to and for the for the real property nerds out there listening in, if you want something deeper, we can uh, we can do a deeper episode uh, where, we, where we do go into the the weeds on all this because um, you could talk for days on on trust structures and setups and asset protection and, uh, and, and tax minimization, I suppose, or maximization depending on how you look at it. <laughs> well, tax maximisation is not something I'm familiar with. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and it's, uh, I suppose from an investment point of view, tax is the the secondary uh, almost byproduct slash benefit of investing. We, we don't, well, I don't anyway, go out with the sole purpose to, to uh, minimise my tax with this investment. I'm buying that investment to get some cash flow from it or to get some capital growth from it. If I can get some tax benefits along the journey, then that's a, a an added benefit to property investing, isn't it? Yeah, correct. And that's obviously where like financial planners and things can come into, come into play as well and help you out, work out your strategy. What do I require? Do I require capital growth or... Do I need cash flow? You know, a 25 year old and a 55 year old are going to have different answers to those questions. Mm. But yeah, tax is always the afterthought. 
So it's, you know, we want to make sure we're involved in the conversations and make sure we can put it in place, but you don't pick assets for tax deductions. No, yeah. And and uh, there, there was a question there at the end from Christine, I believe, and we'll finish off in this one. Um, depreciation schedules, when to get them done, new properties, um, fully furnished, etc. And we know that the maximum depreciation is on new properties, isn't it? So, um, it's not a question that you necessarily need to answer because I've already sort of done it, but it just reminded me that they they are maximum in their tax deductions with the high depreciation, um, but we've got to ensure that the asset's going to be right for us first and foremost before we just go and say, oh, we'll just go and buy brand new or build brand new just to get the depreciation. Yeah, correct. And another trap there can be with if you spend an extra 50000 thinking about the depreciation schedule, well, if you're borrowing the money, that extra fifty thousand doesn't cost you fifty thousand in the end. Time you add interest on top of it as well, mm. and the length of the loan, you've paid a lot more than fifty thousand for it. For a depreciation expense, you don't get the benefit in the first year. Mm. Yeah, interesting stuff. Okay, all right, Michael James, thanks very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. Thanks for answering those questions. So, um, yeah, if you want to hook up with Michael Altus Financial, uh, the link will be in the show notes there. Uh, hopefully you've all got something out of that I know I did Uh, thanks for allowing us into your ears and lives and everything else thanks again for those that submitted questions in the Facebook group apologies to those who we didn't get to today that may be an episode 2 for us down the track Uh, but look forward to chatting to you soon We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.